Well, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to just start off with a word of prayer. And then I'm going to show you guys an article. I'll read an article to you, I should say. And I'll share with you how we got there and what it's about. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. And we pray that you would continue to teach us and direct us. That as you're sharing with the Corinthians so many millennia ago, you're also sharing with us here in the 21st century. And we pray that we are convicted and that we have a proper understanding of money and resources and things. And pray that we would have hearts for you above all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I started getting prepared for this portion of the sermon. Remember last week we talked about money and giving in terms of the fellowship and how the fellowship's supposed to give, how churches are supposed to give, and the convictions. And today is going to be a practical and personal application, but we're still dealing with the Corinthian church. And so I started, I did the dangerous thing. I went into Google and I said, how many Bible verses are there about money? And you keep seeing all these different uh, numbers, but the same numbers listed over and over again. I go, oh, that must be interesting, but where did they get that number from? Because I can't just trust Google. I know, every, I know everything that's true on the internet. But I had to find it, and I, I got back to this article that I found. It was written in 2017 by a man named Brandon Park. It's about a book I've never read, so that's dangerous, right? But it seems like it's a book on biblical principles. It's only four, four paragraphs. I'm going to read it to you and then tell you why I wanted to share it with you. He said, I just finished reading a book filled with Bible verses on money titled God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School by Gregory Balmer and John Cortinez. It's a great read full of scriptural truth. One of the things that stood out to me in this book was the work of Howard Dayton. In 1973, Howard, a successful businessman, began doing a study on the Bible and categorized all the scriptures that talk about money and possessions into a single topical index. The result is a culmination of 2,350 scriptures that talk about money and our use of it. However, Dayton said, quote, This study radically and permanently changed me from worshiping money to serving Christ, end quote. Since then, Howard has helped reach over 50 million people with the biblical truth of how we manage God's resources. Think about it this way. There are 500 Bible verses pertaining to the topics of faith and prayer, yet 2,350 Bible verses on money. Why is that? Because God knows that our attitude toward money is an indication of where our heart is with God. We will either follow after gold or God, and we cannot serve two masters. We will either turn to our wallet or our worship when we look to the source of our security, but we have to remember, money is to be a resource, but is not to be my source. Number one, I wanted to share the article so you can get the source of the 2,350 verses that come from the Bible. It comes from this uh, Howard Dayton in 1973. Also, I wanted to point out that last line, money is to be our resource, but it is not to be my source. And with that background, let's read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 9, and we'll pick back up. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, and I have struggled with that word all week, superfluous for me, Let's pretend I said it right. For me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. 
Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect. That, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, exclamation point, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you have previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So we see a couple of things right off the bat. Paul's calling them out directly, Them, the Corinthians. He's calling the Corinthians out. Remember last week, they were supposed to have this offering for the Judeans, for the Christians in Jerusalem and in Israel, ready a year ago. Not only that, Paul is saying, when I went to the Macedonians, that's the northern part of Greece, I told them, hey, Macedonians, the Corinthians have already promised they're going to give us a large gift. If we have your gift and then several other churches, and then we'll take it to Jerusalem because Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And then Paul here mentions the Achaia. The Achaia is another city in, in Greece. And so you have all these different cities. And Paul says, I'm on my way. We're coming down there. We're going to, make the, we're going to collect the offering. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think, says, uh, make sure that offering is ready before I get there a year ago. Paul says, I'm on my way. And he goes, what if I bring some Macedonians with me? And you said a year ago you were going to have this gift, and what if I bring those Macedonians and the gift isn't going to be ready? And so the question is, what is it about money that we can make promises or that we could want to do something with it, but when it comes to actually spending it, we fist it? You know, like Scrooge McDuck, the old cartoon. It might be a little young for some of you, but Scrooge would have his big vault full of gold coins, and he'd dive into it, and he'd start swimming in it before the cartoon. Before That was the intro. And some of us do the same thing. What is it about when we take that wallet out, and we'll pretend there's some money in my wallet. We'll just pretend. And we take it out, and we bring that dollar bill out. Why is it that there's so many different emotions that we have regarding that money? You see, is it good or is it bad money? Are rich people good? Are poor people good? Are rich people bad? Are poor people bad? You see, we attach emotions to money. Money's just a thing. It's an inanimate object. Unless it's digital, then it's just nothing, I guess. Just hopes and dreams and zeros and ones. But we attach these emotions, and people come and they try and attach emotions to your money. For example, maybe you're well off here, and they say, well, you must have ripped all those poor people off to get that money. They're just putting emotions on a thing. Or somebody could look at a poor person and say, oh, well, they just don't work hard enough. They're just lazy. And they're attaching an emotion. You don't know if any of those things are true. It doesn't really matter. The money itself is just an item, a thing. The Macedonians, remember, they were very poor, but they were giving a lot. The Corinthians, we know, are very rich, and they're holding on to it. Some skeptic might say, well, that's the reason the Macedonians are poor. That's why the Corinthians are better off. But again, you're attaching emotion. Now, Paul is calling out these churches and using those regions to do so, and he's got a purpose in this. 
Well, remember from last week in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, in the King James, it's provoked. In the New Kings, it's stir up, where it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Stir up what? Love, the agape love. He's not talking about money. He's not talking about an amount. He, he's not going and saying, hey, Corinthians, you guys promised a million gold coins. The Macedonians don't have everything, anything, but they brought 10,000. Where's your million? Never in this chapter are we going to see an amount or a person called out because that's not the point. God's not after that inanimate object. He's not after that thing. He's after our motive. He's after our heart. And whatever emotions we apply to money is just us applying it. We're not to be boasting in the amount. Last week we talked about not having the thermostat, the thermometer. Oh, we got to get to that top point. We got to get to that amount of money. God does not care about that. That doesn't mean there's not practical needs. We'll talk about those in a little bit. We know that the Judeans were starving. We know they're going through a famine. We know that those Christian believers were being kicked out of families and marketplaces and synagogues. But nowhere here does it say how much money is supposed to be, a, to be uh, given to them. You ever been to a church and they'll, they'll tell you about uh, the wells in Africa and they'll tell you about how, look at these pictures of these kids. They don't have any water. And you're going to go home and put the cup in the fridge and you're going to have ice cold ice and you're just going to drink it. You're so rich. We need $3 million to build these three wells. Other these kids are all going to die. It says here that you're not to give grudgingly. It's not to get a certain amount. It's about meeting a real need. But most importantly, it's about that agape love. Does that mean that when we're meeting those needs, that it's okay for the church to just push and cajole and, and to make those, um, I, I won't even call them you know, rallies, whatever they're called, to just get on your heartstrings and use every single technique of man to get that wallet to come out and to start opening it up? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. But we're supposed to be motivated by that agape love, not begrudgingly, he said, he, he says, yeah, you know, I'm going to bring, you guys need to think about what you're saying, where your heart is at, because I'm going to bring some Macedonians down there maybe, or you guys gave your word and you didn't keep it. You guys need to have a heart check. But that's not about writing the check. It's about our walk with the Lord and what pleases Him. That's where Paul's going to go now in verses 6 through 7. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 9, it says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember, money is a resource, but it is not my source. He doesn't, he doesn't write the amount here. Yeah, if you guys don't raise this million gold coins for these Judeans, then they're all going to die, and it's all your fault. No, he says God loves a cheerful giver. And you need to have this spiritual understanding to know that if you give much, you'll receive much. There are churches out there today, though, that will say, well, if you get up right now and you put $100 in that box, you'll get $1,000 back. That is a lie. That is a con. 
There's nothing in here about that. He says, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. That's not financial planning. That's spiritual advice for drawing closer to the Lord. If you spent every dime you ever make on yourself, are you better off? Are you a better person? Are you a better individual? Are you more fulfilled? What have you attained? If you give every penny you have away, does that make you a better person? Does that make you good or bad? Remember we talked about it earlier? What is it about? Now, we said last week that what if the church sold everything it had, stopped paying the rent, put everything towards missionary work, all of us quit our jobs, and we all went to the mission field? Well, number one, we got a problem, because how are we going to eat? Where are we going to get housed? And now we're becoming a burden and not a blessing. But what is it about the individual? Maybe every one of you should sell everything you have and just serve Christ 100% of the time. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's what it says. I didn't write it. That means if you sell everything you have and you just leave your family destitute because you're, quote, following God, you're worse than a non-believer. God's words. But it says here that God loves a cheerful giver. So what are we talking about here? As a believer, we want to please God. What is a blessing to God? What does God want? Does God want inanimate objects? Does He want the dollar bills? Is God more interested in Benjamin Franklin's portrait than He is in your heart? Absolutely not. All He cares about is your soul. The stuff is just stuff. Now, we're to be cheerful givers with our husband, with our wife. If we're giving millions of dollars to the church and your, your husband and your wife's not taken care of, the Lord's not pleased, pleased with you. It's not being a cheerful giver. We're to take care of our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our neighbors. Yes, ministries, missionaries, the poor, whatever the Lord puts on our heart. But we want to be well-pleasing to Him and we want to do it with the proper priorities. It's about the heart and the motive. That's what Paul's going after here. Remember, this chapter is about an offering that's being given to a specific people with a specific problem. But Paul's bringing it back to the personal application. God loves a cheerful giver. You need to be a cheerful giver because that's what God wants. Whatever you give, do it not begrudgingly. That means don't be upset with it. Don't just do it because of obligation. Do it because you want to. You see, money just exposes who you are. It doesn't make you who you are. It's a thing. The more you have of it, the more you use it, the more you use it in the way that you would want to use it because it just exposes your motives. That's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say your treasure is your heart, but he says where you spend it, where you use it shows where your heart is, what you care about. I shared this story in the first surgeon, and Megan got all uppity with me about it. Just like I said she would if you were here in the first service. You see, back when I was in high school and I was courting my future wife, a.k.a. flirting with my girlfriend, I did all kinds of dumb, crazy things. Like, I would start writing these notes. And the kids here, they don't even know what I'm talking about here. But on college rule, you would write a note to someone 
and you would fold it up all fancy, and you'd give it to your friend. Oh, give this to that, that girl over there. Her name's Megan. That girl? No, not that girl. The other girl. And bring it over there, and she said, oh, okay, here. And then she would write something on it, send it back to her friend, and it would come back. We've been married almost 20 years. That's a bit silly now, but it was important. Then, then I did this really crazy thing, and I brought flowers to school. Those of you that know me, I'm not any different than I was then. And so I brought flowers to give it to her, and she's like, yeah, you know, I, I really don't like flowers. Now, <laughs> side note, side note, I got to share my lecture with the rest of you. Number one. Number one, yes, I've been using that for 20 years. No, it doesn't work anymore. Number two, she politely reminded me that it was only our second week dating, and she thought it was weird. She wanted to remind me of that. And then number three, I did some other dumb things that we don't really want to admit anymore. What's the point, though? What's the point? A cheerful giver. I was motivated by love. Yes, dumb puppy dog, high school love, but I was motivated by love to give. It wasn't what I gave, it wasn't how I gave, it wasn't the amount that I gave. It wasn't like, well, you can afford 24 flowers, not 12. It was the motivation. God loves a cheerful giver, and we should be a giver because God loves it, because we want to please Him. And nothing in here is about the amount. We need to remember that rich people are not bad people. They can be. Poor people are not bad people. They can be. Being rich or being poor or having money is all perspective. It's just opinions. It's just thoughts. We have a saying at the company. We have a saying in the house. I say it with my kids all the time. We have a saying in this church. It's easy to spend other people's money. It's easy to spend other people's money, but when it comes to us spending it, oh, now we have all kinds of emotions attached to it. We need to remember, those of us here in this fellowship that are very well off, that God gave us the ability to even make it. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 18, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you, pow- gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. I, I say that because some of us are just... We, it's just easier to do business, some of us. It's a game to us. We just have to win at this game. That doesn't make you a bad person or a good person. It just makes it that God has given you the ability to accumulate a thing. And how you use that thing could be to the glory of God or to yourself. Uh, some of us are not very good with it at all. We're bad managers of it. We're not very good at getting it. That doesn't make you a good person or a bad person. That just means you're bad with an item. That's not the point of being a Christian. Proverbs is full of all kinds of ways to be diligent. The Bible says in Proverbs, one of my favorites, the lazy man puts his hand to the bowl and is too lazy to bring it to his mouth. That means he has the ability, but he doesn't want to use that ability. Well, for some of you, you may think that's because if you make money, that makes you a poor person, makes you a bad person. And that poor people are actually just being taken advantage of. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is completely neutral about it. Because that's not the focus. There may be 2,530 verses about money, but money is not the focus. You see, our goal is Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, there are some that say those things that will be added to you is money. Some people may even use these verses here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 
about reaping and sowing that God wants to give you material things. No, He does not. It doesn't matter. We want to seek the Lord and make Him pleased. We want to please Him. We could reap and sow and sow and reap and accumulate great wealth, and it could mean nothing. But you could sell all that you have. You could be poor, and it could mean nothing. You could be very rich and take care and be a great giver to your spouse, to your family, to your kids, your neighbors, missionaries, and the Lord could be well-pleased. Or you could accumulate great wealth. You can do all those things, and you can invest tons into the kingdom, and you could get to the kingdom and get nothing because your motive in your heart wasn't there. What is pleasing to God? When it says here, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, that is not a financial plan, okay? That is a spiritual principle. That as you sow, that shall you also reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap of the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh. But as a principle, if you sow spiritually to the Lord, financial giving will also follow because it is an expression of your heart. It's how you're using a resource. But that money is not the source of your joy. It's a resource. I'm sad to say it. We had a bank collapse on the West Coast. We, we have a lot of people saying a lot of negative things are going to happen with the economy. I don't, I don't find joy in it, but there will be people jumping out of windows because of financial instability, because the money has become a source of who they are. It's, a re, it's just a thing. Having more or less of that thing shouldn't make you more or less of a person pleasing to God. And so Paul's going to continue here in verses 8 and 9. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112.9. What does he say? God is able to make all grace abound towards you. You see, the question is, what does it mean to be rich? There's people here in this fellowship, you've been missionaries to Africa. Tell me what it is to be rich in certain areas of Africa. Some of the people in this fellowship have come from Venezuela where they just had an economic collapse. We have people that live in Wexford. We have people that live in the farthest boonies of Hardyville. We have all different strata. And one person may think they're rich, and another person looks at themselves in the mirror that someone else thinks is rich and says, man, I'm so poor compared to somebody else. And it's just all a mentality. And man is putting all these emotions on the stuff. Money is an idol. You remember idols? I'm not talking. I'm talking about Old Testament wooden carved idols where families would bow down to it. They'd give offerings to it. They would think that the idol was mad or the idol was happy based on what they gave and how the weather was. But man is putting the emotions on the idol. The Bible says the idol is deaf, it is blind, and it is dumb. It doesn't speak, it doesn't see, it doesn't hear. It's an inanimate thing. And yet there are families bowing down to it. There are people whose emotions are being dictated to them by this inanimate object. What does it mean to be rich? 
The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You could, have, you could be buried on a pile of your own wealth, or a couple of the elders of, could get together and have to scrape away some dollars so that we can get you thrown into a, a hole somewhere. It doesn't matter because you're dead, and you can't take it with you. Godliness with contentment is great gain because you've brought nothing into this world, and you'll bring nothing out of this world. Real wealth is peace with God and with yourself. Real wealth is peace with God and with yourself. Money is just a thing. I say it over and over because I know we are attaching so many emotions. I'm rich. I'm poor. God hates me. God loves me. God doesn't like me because he didn't give me more of these things. Baloney. Solomon was the richest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived. He had no peace. He didn't have a relationship, a deep relationship with God towards the latter years. He had every, every female companion there is. He was not rich. Richest man materially that ever lived, and he was not rich. David, King David, if we could go back in time, and David is the king of Israel, and he's being chased by Absalom, and everyone's out to get him, and he asked him, hey, David, would you have rather go back and be a shepherd singing songs to God? Where would he rather be? We don't know, but I would seem to think he would rather have been back as a shepherd. You know, some of you guys here, you're gals, you're business owners or business leaders. How many times have you thought, man, I just want to go back to being a worker? I know, I'm the only one. (laughs) You see, real wealth is peace with God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul taught us this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whatever state I am. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased. That's poor. That's lacking. That's with need. And I know how to abound. That's to have money in the account, to drive the car you want. That's to be able to take vacation when you need to. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he says the most misquoted verse of all time, at least top five, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse. The context of that verse is I can be rich and that's okay. I can be poor and that's okay. In whatever state I am through Christ who strengthens me, In whatever state I am, I can be content. That's to be rich. To have peace with God and peace with yourself. Peace doesn't come from money. That's an inanimate object. We're talking about it. It comes from the Lord. And so we're talking about fulfillment. We're talking about livelihood. When we're talking about being truly rich, it's to be the ability to have more or less. If money is not your source then, just your resource, what is your source? How does Christ strengthen you? John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And so we're to draw from the Lord. Paul is teaching the Corinthians 
these spiritual principles that as believers in Christ, because He's given and bestowed all this grace on us, that we should be cheerful givers because that's what's pleasing to God. It reveals our, int- our thoughts and the intentions of the heart, the Word of God, our desire, just like teenage might be in high school, bringing flowers to some random girl, turns out to be my wife, motivated by love. We should do it because it, God loves it. No, it doesn't mean we sell everything that we have and go into the mission field, but we might give way more because we're in love with the Lord. We want to see what He does. You know, there are some people, you just don't want to work. You just don't want to work. And you mean, well, I'm, I'm more spiritual because I'm poor. Maybe, probably not. Probably not. I just can't find a job. We have 3.2% unemployment. You can't find a job. Notice how we attach emotions to who's rich and who's poor, who's righteous, who's not. Only God is the judge. The Corinthians are not being called out for the amount of money. They're being called out because their heart is not right, and they're just Scrooge McDucking their resources. I know you all seen him swim in the coins. <laughs> I am too. It's okay. But you may be doing the same thing. Where is your heart? What is your relationship with this resource? And what is your relationship with God? Now let's read verses 10 through 15. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by the prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And so... Paul is going back to the literal need. Hey, there is a literal need. And I'm waiting for that slide change error. Here it comes. No, no, no. How about this one? Tim, can you hit the next slide for me? I can see it down here, but I can't see it up there. There it is. Almost made it. I told you, you guys guys aren't praying. There it is. Where was I? Was I teaching a sermon or something? We're talking about the literal need that the Judeans have, and he's saying that this practical gift is not a spiritual gift. They have literal physical needs. And he's saying, grace be to God who gave you the material things that you're able to fulfill this need, and all glory to God, and the people that are going to receive it are going to glorify your name, as, glorify God's name as well, not glorify you. And so we should be giving literal financial money. We should be giving it as an offering to God, not to buy Him off or pay Him off or to earn anything, because God has given us that grace. It's He who supplies all these things. It's He who gives us those resources, and it causes thanksgiving through us to God. And we want people to be praising God. If you want to be an evangelist, you want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people can be saved, don't you want them to be praising God? for His provision in their lives, praising God for the gifts that He's giving them. 
Well, one way that we can cause other people to glorify God is by our giving. And if we love the Lord and we want to see the Lord magnified, we want to see Him lifted up, then that's what we want to do. But there's no one amount. Notice there's no people mentioned in this section. There's no amount given. There's no, yeah, you know, we're really trying to raise 5 million gold coins, 2 million gold coins, 1 million gold coins. Paul never says anything about the amount. But there's a connection between the spiritual and the physical. Because remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you got a little snip peek of it there in Wearsby's commentary. He, he shares this story that I had to share with you. He says, I recall reading about a wealthy Christian who daily at family devotions prayed for the needs of the missionaries that his church supported. One morning after he had concluded family prayers, his little boy said, Dad, if I had your checkbook, I could answer your prayers. <laughs> a discerning lad indeed. They're married together, but the focus is never on the item, it's on the heart. You know, wanting to do those things and actually doing those things are two different things. What, how does the saying go? Put your money where your mouth is. Put it to work. See what God does. How you give, what you give, that's between you and God. You see, there are going to be people, I just envision a line, you know, before the Lord in the kingdom, and you got this rich guy there who's given millions of dollars to the ministry, and I could see the Lord just walking up to him and just pushing him to the side to go talk to the fast food worker who gave $5 a week and missed a couple meals to bless somebody else. And the Lord says, wow, praise God. Or, because remember, we attach those emotions. <clears throat> we could see the Lord pushing that worker that gave those $5 faithfully and so impressed with that person who was so rich and gave so much because they dedicated their lives to dedicating and getting that resource to bless the kingdom with. And the Lord looks at the person that gave $5 and says, you were just lazy. You just didn't even try. I gave you the ability to do better and you didn't. Notice how we put on there the morals based on the product. The Lord looks upon the heart. And so we need to be walking with the Lord and used by the Lord. And this is how we're supposed to give when we give. Let's listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. It's so sad, you know, as a pastor, and you go to these churches, especially older churches, it was more traditional. You go and you see a building, and it's dedicated to a person. Like, there's your reward. Man, that stinks. And then I think to myself, this is my carnal nature. Man, you worked really hard to get that money, and you wasted it all on a gold brick on the side of a building. Or you go and you see some old pews and they dedicate it to a certain family or a chair or a bench at a church and it's dedicated to a person or a family. I'm like, man, what a waste. What a wa now, the Lord may judge that differently. Remember, He's the ultimate judge, not me. But when we give, it should be secret because we want to bless the Lord. That's how the Lord likes it. 
and we want to do it for the Lord, and we want people to glorify the Lord through it. See, the Corinthians, they're not supposed to be motivated because, well, the Macedonians are going to think down on you if you don't follow through. Paul's telling them, where's your heart with God? How is the Lord leading you? And then we need to follow up with that. Yeah, we need to put our money where our, mind, uh, our mouth is. Yeah, we need to check our heart. And if, you're, if your emotions and the thoughts that you're putting on that inanimate object, that matter, and you find yourself out of alignment with Scripture, just get back in alignment. You see, there's no greater giver than Christ Himself. God gave Himself. God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever whosoever calls upon His name shall be saved. That's how good of a giver He is. And He gave His Holy Spirit to each and every one of us. And He made us a new creation in Him. And He's preparing palaces in paradise forever. That's how great of a giver He is. He gives the heartbeat and the breath and the mind to the atheist that blasphemes His name. That's how good of a giver He is. So no, you can't outgive God but it is not a financial plan to give $100 to the Lord and expect $1,000 that week. That's not biblical. But it is biblical that that as you sow, that shall you also reap, whether it's to your own flesh or whether it's to the Spirit. Those principles never change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the abilities you've given us. Thank you for the things you've given us. Compared to so many on this planet, Lord, we are richer than rich. And we thank you that we can enjoy those things. And we pray, Lord, that we'd use them for your kingdom as you see fit. We want to please you in what we do. We also don't want to have the wrong motivations and the wrong heart. And you know us, Lord. You know when we're faking it. So we pray for sincerity and we pray that you would use us and that you would bless us and that you would use us to bless others. And we lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you need prayer coming up, we'd love to pray with you. God bless you and have a wonderful week.